0: This is Jim Pruitt and you listen to another episode of the Farm So Hard Podcast. So I farm so hard, employees wanna find me. And then wanna hire me. What's hundred K to a guy like me? Could you please remind me? Farm so hard, this ain't easy. Working late nights, you best believe me. My grades can only go ace. Never wanna see another B unless I'm Jay-Z. Farm so hard, let's get paid. Let's get paid. Hey everyone, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of the Farm So Hard Podcast. My name is Christian Kroll, and today we're going to be doing a breakdown of the all-too-common ED topic, kidney stones. Before we get right into the podcast, you might hear through this podcast the term renal colic when referring to, kid- to kidney stones. And while the term has become synonymous with kidney stones, or the medical term of nephrothiasis, they aren't necessarily the same thing. First, we need to define the word colic. This term colic refers to acute abdominal pain loca- loca- localized in a hollow organ. This pain is usually sharp and sudden, and most often caused by, you guessed it, a kidney stone. Now let's jump back to the podcast. With kidney stones, there's a lot of potential information to cover. Because of that, we are going to really grind down on some of the most important pharmacologic considerations when approaching a patient in your shop with acute kidney stones. Before doing our literature dive into these stones, let's do a quick background buildup. Kidney stones are quite common in the United States population. This is demonstrated as one out of 11 people in the United States have had a kidney stone, painful or not. And while one can have a kidney stone at any point in their life, about 5 to 10 percent of people will. Individuals in their 30s and 40s have the highest likelihood of having a kidney stone. Historically, men have had higher reported rates of kidney stones compared to women. But over time, this has gradually equaled out. Finally, obesity has been shown to have higher rates of kidney stones compared to those of normal weight adults. Now, switching into an anatomy mindset, while stones can be found in many different areas of the urogenital system, we are going to almost exclusively focus on stones within the ureter. Now, stones can be formed because of many different processes, including metabolic, dietary, hereditary, anatomical defects, or infections. Even the environment can impact stone production as individuals that work outside in the warmer weather can have higher stone production because of excessive fluid loss. Most of these stones, around 75 to 90 percent, are made up of calcium either through phosphate or oxalate salts. However, these stones could be from duric acid, cysteine, or struvite, which are stones made from magnesium and ammonia and are most often formed in the presence of urease-producing pathogens like Klebsiella and Pseudomonas. Pharmacologic treatments for these stones include everything from thiazide diuretics for calcium stones to antibiotics for these struvite stones that kill most bacteria. Now, when it comes to the size of the stone, size kind of matters. While the degree of a patient's symptoms might not always be proportional to the size of the stone, a bigger stone is more likely to cause obstructions. So they are generally more painful. Size also depends on if the patient is likely to pass the stone on their own. It is estimated that 95% of stones less than or equal to 4 millimeters will pass on their own within about 40 days. Once you start pushing past 5 millimeters or more, your percentage of ability to pass drops to around 62%. I think that's enough background for now. Let's bring it back to the clinical content. Now, within the management of kidney stones, we have two major guidelines that help direct the treatment and management of nephrolithiasis. These are the 2016 American Urology Association guidelines and the 2021 European Association of Urology guidelines. These guidelines do a great job of summarizing the data that we will be talking about today and provide excellent diagrams and tables for treatment and management. Now we're gonna walk through some specific areas of pharmacologic management for these patients, specifically in the emergency department. Starting off with acute fluid therapy. We know that for patients that have known kidney stones, That a higher fluid intake is beneficial to prevent urine concentration and thus less stone development. However when presenting to the ED with an acute stone historically there has been a practice of providing large volumes of fluid to these patients regardless of fluid status. The theoretical process behind this is thought to be through increasing fluid one can increase the hydrostatic pressure and then promote urinal fluid flow thus increasing the potential for stone passage. Now, there hasn't been a lot of studies evaluating this process, but a 1981 study randomized 60 patients with kidney stones to either three liters of fluid or none. The study showed no difference between the fluid arm and the control for pain score or spontaneous stone passage. This study was followed up by a Cochrane review that included two studies, one of which that we actually just talked about. The review found no supporting evidence for the use of diuretics and high fluid volume for kidney stones. However, if you do have a patient that has a kidney stone that is septic or hypovolemic, we still need to ensure proper fluid resuscitation. Like many things with fluid, we want to ensure that we are pa- giving patients the right amount of fluid, but not overdoing it on fluids. So, for our ED patients that have acute renal colic and uh, acute stones, we don't want to necessarily give them fluid just because they have stone. We want to assess them and give them fluid based on that need. The next big area of impact that pharmacists can play in the management of acute renal colic is the selection and dosing of pain medications. Now before we go right into it, there are multiple ways that we can help manage a patient's pain with kidney stones. We can help the stone pass easier, which will in turn cause less pain, or we can help treat the pain through mechanisms such as opioids. In my mind, there are three different categories of medications used to treat pain specifically with acute renal colic. Those are anti-inflammatory medications, opioids, in the quote unquote other medication class. Let's start from the top with NSAIDs. NSAIDS can potentially help in the management of acute renal colic through different mechanisms. They can help through reducing inflammation that leads to spasms, reducing urinal edema, and decreasing renal pelvic pressure. The 2021 European Guidelines recommend giving NSAIDs as the first line option for pain relief and opioids as a second line therapy. Regarding the data on NSAIDs, there's many studies on dosing, route, and choice of NSAIDs that are used. As a point of reference, a 2019 meta-analysis included 65 randomized controlled trials about NSAIDs in acute renal colic, and that's a lot of studies. Within that meta-analysis, they found that NSAIDs via the IM route were actually superior to IV opioids. The study also found that NSAIDs administered via the IM route caused less adverse effects compared to IV-administered opioids as well. A 2018 article in European European Neurology found that the number of kidney stone patients needed to treat with NSAIDs to prevent one occurrence of vomiting with opioid therapy was only five patients. That's a decent return on investment just from using a simple therapy like NSAIDs in these patients. Now, are there any NSAIDs to specifically avoid? One 2015 Cochrane review found that indomethacin was less effective compared to other NSAID therapies. In practice, Ketorilac is by far and away the workhorse parental and said within the ED. Additionally, an important factor to consider is then what initial dosing are we going to start at? For Ketorilac specifically, the 2021 trial evaluated this topic and found that there was no difference between 10, 20, and 30 milligram doses. With this result, one can consider probably starting on that lower end on that 10 or 20 and working our way up depending on the patient's needs. Another anti-inflammatory medication to consider is the use of steroids in acute renal colic. The European guidelines specifically state that there is insufficient evidence for the use of corticosteroids based on insufficient evidence. Usually, steroids have been combined with alpha blockers to help facilitate stone passage because of their anti-inflammatory effect. The most recent trials have used a steroid dosing of about 8 milligrams of methylprednisolone or about 10 milligrams of prednisone equivalents. Based on the current data that is available, I really wouldn't recommend steroids routinely in many of these patients. And We really need more data to make this a standard recommendation. The European guidelines also recommend that opioids are used as second-line therapy. They specifically call out hydromorphone as an option. And I think that this is a great option as hydromorphone is a long-standing IV opioid that's been used in the ED. Many of our providers have a lot of experience with that. So we can dose that uh, medication as appropriate for our patients depending on their level of pain and dose it frequently based on their level of pain as well. Additional medications that have new data for the management of acute renal colic are magnesium and lidocaine. Magnesium's mechanism of action in acute renal colic is believed to be through the NDMA antagonism. Studies for magnesium have shown mixed results, including a 2020 meta-analysis of four studies where a magnesium dose between 15 and 50 milligrams per kilogram showed no benefit over a control. And a 2021 randomized control trial showed that magnesium dose at 50 milligrams per kilogram with a max of 2 grams had similar pain reduction scores to morphine. With these two different results, magnesium still has a lot to prove to be considered as standard treatment for pain in a renal clock, but maybe could be considered in those really refractory patients that are past the NSAID opioid therapies. Lidocaine is believed to produce its pain mechanism through the blockade of sodium channels. Similarly to magnesium, lidocaine doesn't have an overwhelming of data supporting its use in acute renal colic, And what data is around is pretty conflicting. Most studies have used a 1.5 milligram per kg IV dose. A 2028 study compared lidocaine plus Ketorolac to Ketorolac alone or lidocaine alone and found that the combination of lidocaine plus Ketorolac performed similarly to Ketorolac alone and better than IV lidocaine alone. On a positive note, there hasn't been a large signal that lidocaine is unsafe or poorly tolerated at the doses that we've been using. But again, similarly to magnesium, still has a lot to prove before we use this one routinely. Overall, we should be using NSAIDs first in acute renal colic patients. If possible, opioids are decent second-line options and are recommended by the guidelines. There is expanding data for the use of magnesium and lidocaine in acute renal colic. Again, these agents shouldn't be used routinely, and if they are, they should really be used in those really refractory cases as well. Now, we're going to transition to a different but extremely common pharmacotherapy for medical expulsive therapy, or alpha blockers. The term medical expulsive therapy, or MET, is designed to help stones within the urogenital system pass easier, which helps with pain and overall duration of symptoms. The most common medications to be used for this indication are alpha blockers. Now, when looking at the ureter, there are alpha blockers along the entire ureter but the highest concentration is located in the distal ureter. Again, this is what we talked about before is most of the stones that we're gonna be looking at are within the ureter and specifically within the distal ureter. Blocking the alpha receptors within the distal ureter helps decrease the force of contraction and decreases the frequency of peristaltic waves. Within the ureter, there's also different types of alpha one receptors. Within the distal ureter specifically, There's a much higher concentration of alpha-1D receptors, followed by alpha-1A receptors, then followed by alpha-1B receptors. This impacts our medication selection, since tamsulosin is a more specific alpha blocker for the 1A receptor compared to other alpha blockers that are more specific to 1B. This allows our agents to have less hypotensive effects because they're not as systemically effective. When looking at the guidelines, both the American and European guidelines recommend that for specifically distal ureteral stones, MET therapy should be offered. Data for these therapies has shown that most stones under four millimeters will pass on their own within that 40-day period, and stones over 10 millimeters qualify for more invasive removal strategies. This leaves us with that window of 5 to 10 millimeter stones as a prime target for this MET treatment and really what most studies have used as their inclusion criteria. There is a multitude of data for these studies as evidenced by a 2018 Cochrane Review that included 67 studies. That meta-analysis suggested that alpha blockers were better for stones greater than 5 millimeters compared to less than 5 millimeters. One of the biggest studies in this area is a 2018 randomized control trial on Tamsulosin that included 3,296 patients. That's a lot of patients specifically for renal stones. This study found Tamsulosin with four weeks of therapy had lower analgesic requirements and higher stone expulsion rates and quicker time to expulsion of those stones. Now, what about other alpha-acting agents? Now, Tamsulosin has been shown to have less complications, reduced expulsive time, and higher expulsive rates compared to agents like calcium channel blockers like nifedipine. specifically. PD and 5 inhibitors like Tadalafil have shown no extra benefit over tamsulosin, but when used in combination, there has been some studies that have shown benefits of higher passage and colic rate episode reductions. However, that data is limited and needs to be expanded before its use is more widely adopted. Additionally, other specific blockers like silodosin show similar reductions to tamsulosin, with potentially a higher expulsive rate. Doxazosin or, and other similar medications have been shown to expedite stone passage when compared to placebo, but they also come with an increased adverse effects because they're not as specific to, to the ureter compared to medications like tamsulosin. Now, the final question is how long to prescribe these therapies for? Most studies did anywhere from two to four weeks of therapy. However, I commonly see around, around seven to 10 days of tamsulosin prescribed at my shop. While our prescribing habits do differ from how the drugs have been studied, I think that's okay. Most of the studies show that with an alpha blocker on board, one usually passes the stone around 7 to 10 days, especially for those distal stones. That extra alpha blockade is usually just what is needed to help open up the ureter a little bit more so that stone can pass through easily. With that, I think that usually between one to two weeks of therapy is fine for most patients that qualify for that medical expulsive therapy treatment. And uh, if you do want to consider adding on a few extra weeks, I think that's reasonable to do. But around that seven to 14 day window is usually fine for most patients. Overall, for patients that meet inclusion criteria for medical expulsive treatment, consider alpha blockers. Tamsulosin has been the workhorse for this indication for a long time. It has shown consistent improvements in stone passage, reduction in renal colic episodes, and quicker time to stone passage. Especially since it's generic and readily available, this makes it an easy choice for prescribers to prescribe. Other therapies are on the horizon like PD-5 inhibitors, steroids, and other specific alpha blockers, but more more data and information is needed to change my recommendation of starting Tamsulosin. I hope you all appreciated that abbreviated review on kidney stone management. Creating an impact on fluid therapy, pain management, and medical expulsive therapy options is a simple intervention, but one that can easily leave an impact on patient care. Let's close it out with, you don't have to be a pharmacist, you don't have to work in an ED, but whatever you do, make sure you farm so hard. Thank you.